Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. All right, everyone, welcome. Uh, thanks, thanks for coming today. Welcome to the Spring 2019 Kennedy School Gender and Security Seminar Series. Um, and thank you especially for coming on this incredibly cold and windy day. Um, my name is Dara Cohen, and I'm an associate professor of political science here at the Kennedy School. And I co-organized this seminar series along with my colleague Zoe Marks, who's a lecturer here at, at the Kennedy School. Um, the Kennedy School Gender and Security Seminar Series this spring is going to be focused on the theme of L LGBT in war. And we're going to be featuring speakers from the academic and policy worlds who are going to be addressing LGBT issues in national militaries, in non-state armed groups, and um, the experiences of LGBT victims and survivors of war. So our next event in the series will be on Friday, April 5th, um, and will be focused on issues of LGBT combatants in the Colombian Civil War. Um, today, I would like to thank the four research centers at the Kennedy School who have sponsored today's event, supporting us both financially and through the work of their staff uh, to help us organize the event for today. That includes the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, the Carr Center for Human Rights, and the Women in Public Policy Program. So thank you very much to all four of those centers. Um, we are going to be recording this seminar to be released as a podcast through the Women in Public Policy Program. Um, and so we welcome today WAP's online podcast community as well. Uh, and we are so pleased that today's talk can reach uh, beyond the walls of, our, of this room today. Um, I wanted to note, however, that the Q&A portion of the event today will not be broadcast. So for those of you who are considering asking questions. Um, so our plan for today is that Professor Belkin will speak for about 30 to 35 minutes. And then this will be followed by some questions from the moderator. And then we'll open it up for questions from the audience. And I just want to ask that you please hold your questions, unless they're brief clarifying questions, until the, uh, the Q&A uh, period at the end. Um, so I will now briefly introduce our moderator for today, um, Juliette Kayam, who will then introduce our speaker for today, Professor Aaron Belkin. So Juliette Kayam is, is the Belfer Lecturer in International Security here at HKS. She previously served as President Obama's Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs at the Department of Homeland Security. Among her many, many accomplishments, in 2013, she was named the Pulitzer Prize finalist for editorial columns in the Boston Globe, um, focused on ending the Pentagon's combat exclusion rule against women. And this is a topic she has continued to write and speak about in the years since. So please join me in welcoming um, Professor Kahneman and Professor Belkin. Thank you so much. And thank you, Dara and Zoe, for, uh, for organizing these events. I'm, I'm honored to be here and thrilled. I'm just going to speak for a few minutes um, and maybe put a little bit of this in context because of the issues that, that are going to be addressed through this series over the semester. Um, it's an honor and humbling uh, to be here with you and the work that you've done. My, my work uh, in this field of military access uh, began uh, as a lawyer um, and then a practitioner and then most recently, as Dara said, as a writer. Um, as a young uh, uh, lawyer in the Civil Rights Division, I was assigned my first two cases were the Citadel and VMI access cases. Many of you will remember those. Uh, Citadel and the Virginia Military Institute were quasi-public institutions that 
uh, denied women access um, uh, based on the notion of a citizen soldier could really only be a man. Um, the Supreme Court heard those cases, um, and they are now open. About nine and ten percent female tells you that, that was in the '90s. So it tells you how long these things uh, uh, happen. As a practitioner. Um, uh, the issues of access or our notion of what the military is uh, became real for me as a, as a state homeland security advisor here in Massachusetts and then working in DC. Um, it's not uncommon in these fields, obviously, for the ratios of men to women to be uh, quite uh, weighted in favor of men, but, um, uh, but the issues around sexual harassment, uh, as I think, as consistent to a narrative that women were a second-class status, uh, became real for me. I oversaw the National Guard here, of which we had uh, a pretty public uh, sexual harassment case that some of you may remember, um, as well as um, uh, in the civilian law enforcement and public safety community. But uh, my, my biggest entree into this was as a writer. I had written columns for the Boston Globe on the access issue, on what do we think of the military. For me, um, it was really around women in combat. Uh, by the time I started writing that series, um, of which everyone thought, why are you writing so much about this, um, it was 150 women had died in the Iraq and Afghan mm -hmm. wars, apparently not in combat. Um, that seemed odd. Uh, and of course, women, people die in wars all the time, not in combat. There's lots of people there, and there are mistakes and accidents and, and even suicides. But it became clear that a lot of those women um, were um, not being trained, uh, not getting their resources, uh, and then um, through machinations of legal reasoning by the Pentagon, were affiliated with combat troops, but not associated with them. That was the distinction that it got down to, um, which basically meant they were in combat. Um, and what I came to learn as I looked at the history of this issue from on access from African-American uh, soldiers to the Don't Ask, Don't Tell to women, and then later on, uh, uh, on um, transgender issues, is that they actually had a lot in common. So I don't want you all, over the course of the series, to think of them as different. Um, they First of all, they rested on two very similar themes that I know you'll get into. One that, that as a writer, I got into, which is the idea of masculinity. What does it mean to be a soldier? Uh, the other is what has been argued by the Pentagon as it uh, tried to close access uh, starting with African-American soldiers, which is this notion of unit cohesion, which would be interesting to hear from those of you in the military here about uh, what that actually means. Um, but I think that the line that runs through all of these access issues uh, that I know Aaron will get into is that the strategy to end them is pretty similar. It's media, it's internal, it's external, it's legal. Um, and in particular, your work with Don't Ask, Don't Tell, um, that if, in some ways it was the courts that really did, uh, there was external pressures and internal pressures, but it was when women filed a lawsuit that you actually saw the changes uh, in the woman and access issue. Um, the challenges remain, as we know, they remain, um, I don't think the woman in combat issue is settled, a court ruled on Friday. Uh, that women would, under equal protection, have to sign up for the draft or end the draft, uh, which is new. Um, and they obviously are getting a lot of focus now on the transgender uh, uh, soldiers and uh, this administration's um, approach to this issue. So that's sort of the long sweep of access um, that uh, leads us to Aaron uh, Belkin as a professor of uh, political science at San Francisco State University. 
Um, when I was reading up on you, um, your work on Don't Ask, Don't Tell, um, as the founding director of the Palm Center, which focuses on issues of sexual minorities in the military, uh, you were described as um, being the most influential single individual in ending the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy. Um, uh, the author of How We Won Progressive Lessons from the Appeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which Ariana Huffington, she, she doesn't do good blurbs often, uh, <laughs> called uh, Best Practices Guide for Civil Rights Fights Going Forward. Um, so as you know, uh, the work uh, that Erin has done in the, at, here and at the Palm Center does not, did not end with the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy um, and the work that you're doing now we are very grateful to hear about um, and to hear about your long journey um, um, uh, with the military. So thank you so much for being here. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here and thank you for that um, lovely introduction and thank you so much to Dara and Zoe for the invitation and the staff made it very easy to travel here, so I'm, I'm grateful. I, I will say, um, when you talked a second ago, um, Dara, about um, clarifying questions, uh, interrupting, it, it, it uh, evoked a memory I hadn't thought of for three decades, but um, one of the first things I did at the beginning of my career 30 years ago was have this tiny little briefing, I think for six people, including Secretary McNamara. And um, the moderator said that no questions would be allowed during the presentation, and then he asked one. And the moderator was like, no, 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 you have to wait. So um, uh, I, I'd forgotten the precedent. Um, but you're welcome to, uh, to uh, interview if you have questions or comments or grievances. Um, I want to um, briefly outline a puzzle about the repeal of the transgender military ban. Um, and then uh, in the second uh, and longer part of the remarks, um, uh, provide a provisional explanation um, for the puzzle um, in terms of uh, both contextual factors and advocacy factors. Um, so the puzzle that I want to um, kind of use to, to motivate the, the, the remarks is that the transgender ban was repealed very quickly um, the sustained activism on the repeal of the ban didn't start until the beginning of the Obama, Obama's uh, second term. And the ban was lifted in, uh, well, Ash Carter lifted the ban in uh, June of 2016. Um, and that was, that was uh, you know, light speed for social justice advocacy. And when the campaign started in 2013, um, I told our core donor, um, you know, don't have any expectations for 15 or 20 years. Um, but then the ban was gone, uh, or most of the ban was gone um, within within three years. So, so part of the puzzle is why uh, the repeal happened so quickly. And a parallel part of the puzzle is I've been very, very proud um, that um, uh, until, at least as of now, uh, transgender military policy is one of, if not, the only policy in, think of the thousands of regulations and laws um, under federal purview, and it's, it's the only area I can think of where we're actually better off today than we were under Obama, um, and that's because the courts forced um, the Pentagon to finalize one little piece of implementation that Obama didn't have time to do. Um, um, as you know, President Trump has, has tried uh, many times to, to chip away at the ban, and he's about to succeed, which is very sad and devastating, in fact. 
Um, but, but a parallel part of the puzzle is why has inclusive policy held out so long when so many other policies have been either destroyed or chipped away at by the administration. And, and I will say um, the, the kind of um, uh, the, 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 the complexity of the puzzle is that um, there were a lot of obstacles standing in the way of repeal when the advocacy started in two, and started in earnest in 2013. Um, I, I mean, I think it was right to predict that it would take 15 or 20 years. Um, uh, but just to, to, to gesture at a few of those obstacles before turning to um, an explanation of the puzzle, um, one issue was public opinion. Um, public really had not thought about the issue. Um, and unlike Don't Ask, Don't Tell, where tragically you had thousands of people being fired, some of whom became um, important messengers for the need to repeal the policy. Um, you know, fighter pilots who served in the Middle East and then had been fired when a jealous boyfriend uh, told their commander. We, we, we really didn't have um, stories like that, um, with very few exceptions. In fact, if anything, the, the, the first transgender service member to be known to the public was really Chelsea Manning, who was a you know, difficult, um, whatever you think of <coughs> Chelsea Manning, that was a difficult um, kind of uh, opening uh, gambit in the, in the conversation. And, and, and another obstacle was the balance of power between the LGBT groups in Congress and the White House, because um, the White House in its uh, second term had limited capital and a hostile House of Representatives, and shortly after, a hostile Senate. And the major LGBT groups were not interested in the transgender military ban. Um, and um, the largest MSDNTEL groups had melted away. Um, and, then, and then a final obstacle was, um, of course, military culture, because um, the generals and admirals at the top of the pyramid, um, I would argue, were very firmly committed to um, sex segregation, gender segregation, binaries, uh, Patriarchy, sexism, misogyny—I'll say—and um, um, uh, and, and and those were concerns that played out culturally, but also played out at the level of uniforms and bathroom architecture, and and so there were a lot of obstacles, and so that's why I believe it, it is a puzzle to, to to try to figure out why the ban melted away so quickly. So, in the second. Um, and final um, part of, of the remarks, I'm going to um, meditate for a little while on um, some explanations as to why I think the man um, um, uh, was toppled so quickly, and then also why inclusive policy has persevered um, under Trump. And so kind of three um, baskets of factors um, in this explanation. And, and, and the first basket is um, contextual factors that um, that really just had nothing or very little to do um, with the advocacy um, effort. <coughs> um, one of the interesting um, uh, contextual factors um, was the momentum from Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal. And, and, and this was really, um, um, I would say even fun uh, to watch this play out, but, but uh, the momentum from Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal played out on a number of different levels. Um, for one thing, we had gay and lesbian allies throughout the Pentagon who were helping with the repeal of the transgender ban um, almost from day one, and usually from behind closed doors, but um, all the way up to openly serving um, gay and lesbian general um, officers. Um, so that was an important factor. Um, and the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell had also um, discredited 
one of the factors that um, Juliet mentioned, which was the unit cohesion rationale, which was um, one of the main ideas. Um, it was a phony rationale from the outset, but it was um, it was the, the, the ostensible rationale for, for discriminating against gays and lesbians had, had been widely discredited in the Don't Ask, Don't Tell You, so that it was, it was pretty hard to argue with a straight face that um, trans troops would, um, would undermine cohesion, although uh, Trump has tried to resuscitate that claim, um, and the Supreme Court seems to buy that. Um, and then uh, a related piece of the momentum from repeal was that military audiences were confused. And this was, this was interesting to watch, but um, I gave a talk at the um, Naval Postgraduate School, I believe it was 13, 2013 or 14, that I was just asking the students, mid-career officers, um, um, cream of the crop, um, if the trans ban should be repealed. And there was no opposition in the room whatsoever, none. And, and I, I was like, what, like, what's your problem? Like, even, even at the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal, after 16 years of education and 75% public approval, you'd always have at least one member of a military audience who was like, over my dead body, you know, like, no way. Um, and on trans, they were just like, yeah, whatever. Um, we don't care. And, and I was like, what, what's, like, what's your problem? And they said, um, well, like, we've already had the conversation over LGBT and we lost that conversation, so let's move on. Now that was a misimpression, because the military certainly had not had a conversation <laughs> about bisexuality or um, uh, uh, transgender identification, um, but uh, in the minds of many service members, uh, officers, that was not the case. So one contextual factor was don't ask, don't tell repeal. Um, another was the um, repeal of the combat exclusion rule um, in December of, 19, of 2015. Um, uh, the combat exclusion rule, um, of course, prevented women from serving in many um, uh, occupational specialties. And the reason uh, its dismantling was important for um, transgender inclusion is because as long as the combat exclusion rule stayed on the books, um, you could make the argument that there would be implementation confusion because what if, for example, uh, a, a, an army ranger needed to transition to become a woman, and then how would you handle their, their occupational specialty? Um, and, uh, and there are actually very simple, straightforward answers to that, but in the minds of uh, military leaders, um, <coughs> getting rid of the exclusion rule was a big, big, uh, big help. Um, and then a final, um, in this kind of first basket of contextual factors, um, a final factor that, um, that um, uh, opened a space for um, repeal was that there was really no opinion leadership um, on the other side of the issue. Unlike when President Clinton tried to repeal, uh, tried to repeal the gay ban, um, you didn't have um, uh, evangelical churches um, organizing around um, uh, military policy. You didn't have um, conservative leaders in either party. Um, organizing and and, 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 and and as we saw under as we have seen under Trump, um, some of that opinion leadership would emerge um, um, in the new administration. But but in the Obama years, um, we just didn't have um, uh, serious um, opinion leadership on the other side. So so that was that was kind of the contextual setting. Okay, um, a second um, explanation to the puzzle, and and here is where I'll spend the bulk of my remarks. And, and here I want to talk about um, advocacy strategies that worked um, unexpectedly. And I'd like to talk about what it looks like to leverage militarism 
in a highly militarized society. Um, the short bottom line of what I'm about to say is that um, the community, um, the LGBT community, successfully leveraged militarism um, to push uh, the repeal of the ban across the line. Um, and so there were a few different ways um, that that happened. Um, one of the most <coughs> difficult, um, which was the result of um, some really great work by a tiny organization with zero, literally zero budget um, called Sparta, um, was to humanize the issue. Um, the public needed to see transgender service members um, serving effectively. And one of the genius aspects of both the gay ban under Don't Don't Tell and the trans ban is that they shielded themselves from scrutiny because it was all but impossible for trans service members to step forward and say, I'm here. Um, and you could a little bit uh, work with transgender veterans, but that wasn't really compelling um, to journalists and members <coughs> of the public. So some very, very brave members of Sparta, which was at the time a network of a couple hundred openly serving transgender troops who had found each other on Facebook, um, uh, a couple of them were willing to step forward and say to journalists, I'm here, I'm serving effectively. Uh, yes, in telling my story, I risk discharge, but um, it's important for me to talk um, and to put a human face on the issue. And so, um, uh, in a militarized society, that narrative is a very compelling narrative, um, and it was one of the most important um, uh, uh, advocacy pieces um, to get a group of policy. A second um, uh, successful advocacy strategy and this was really um, following Juliet's insights, um, riffing off a strategy that had worked under the Nest Don't Tell repeal. Um, but the, the basic idea here was to discredit the lie that was propping up bad policy. So um, for Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal, um, when the Paul Center was founded, the, um, the gay, les gay lesbian community was, was using a, a kind of a democracy and fairness frame to say that discrimination against gays and lesbians was unfair and anti-democratic. And that message was not working because generals and admirals uh, could always <coughs> respond, you know, we're so sorry about the democratic implications of firing people for who they are, but gays and lesbians undermine unit cohesion, and so we must have discriminatory policy. Um, and so the strategy um, that my group pursued for 12 years um, on Don't Ask, Don't Tell was to dismantle that argument in the court of public opinion. So, so scholars already knew that that argument was untrue, but it's one, it, just because scholars know something, of course, doesn't mean that um, the argument isn't effective in Washington. And so the strategy was to use media, um, and this literally worked three or four times a year um, for more than a decade, about 35 times, um, was to break national news at the level of New York Times or AP or network news on some variation of the message that um, discrimination harms the military, not gays and lesbians. So if you ever saw headlines like Arabic linguists fired for being gay, um, that was, that, or gays in the, you know, new study, gays in the British military a success, that was, that was our stuff. And, and, and the kind of, the length of time it took to saturate the public conversation with that message um, uh, uh, was part of the reason I thought it would, it would take so long to, to shift, um, the, to, to kind of dis discredit the, the, the principle um, rationale for the transgender ban, um, but but actually the discrediting in the case of the trans ban was very fast, and so so the the, the untruth 
at the heart of the trans ban was a little bit different than um, for Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And the, and the major rationale for the trans ban was a medical argument that, that the military couldn't possibly figure out how to deliver transition-related care to trans service members. The surgery is too complicated. You know, a trans uh, <coughs> service member fighting in a cave in Afghanistan could lose their meds, and um, that would have serious consequences. And there's a mental health dimension and a deployments dimension, but basically the argument was was medical. Um, and so, so what we did, we, we only did two things to discredit that, um, and it turned out that that was enough. Um, so the first thing we did was that we asked a former um, US Surgeon General um, to do a commission report with retired general and flag officers, um, just analyzing every part of the medical rationale. So is it true that the military doesn't know how to do genital surgery. Um, no, and it actually turns out that many of the surgeries trans people need are the same surgeries that cis people need and that the military provides on a regular basis, like top surgery. Um, and so um, and so the, um, the former Surgeon General, Surgeon General Elders, um, and um, uh, retired generals and admirals, general flag officers released that study, and that study gener uh, generated a very angry New York Times editorial that literally instructed Secretary Hagel to read the study. Um, and uh, two days after the publication of the op-ed, uh, of the editorial, um, Hagel said that for the first time in American history, he was open to reviewing the ban. Um, and then the second um, move in that, so of the, uh, of the advocacy strategies I'm talking about, so uh, humanizing the issue and now just discrediting the rationale, of the second move within um, the discrediting of the medical rationale was to work behind the scenes for a year to urge the American Medical Association to pass a resolution um, that would uh, uh, echo the same finding that Surgeon General Elders had reached in her study, which was that there was no medical reason for firing trans troops. And the AMA um, went ahead and passed a resolution to that effect. It generated another New York Times editorial, and so then, and, and we also uh, were able to arrange for former U.S. Surgeons General to issue a statement validating the AMA findings uh, resolution. And so we had the Surgeons General of the United States and the top medical organization representing more than 200,000 doctors saying that there was no reason for firing trans troops, for medical reasons anyways. Um, and that did the trick. And of course, some opponents in the Pentagon <coughs> would invoke medical rationales, and indeed are still invoking medical <laughs> rationales under Trump. Um, but um, they are not taken seriously by anyone who is uh, <coughs> in any way fair-minded about the evidence. There simply is no, there's, there's just no credible medical argument to make. Um, okay, um, a third uh, strategy, advocacy strategy, so among the advocacy strategies that worked, um, was, um, uh, had to do with implementation. So, and there were, there were two different phases of um, implementation that I'll, um, that I'll mention. And I know it's, I know it's um, grossly rude to um, insult someone's house when you're in their house, <laughs> but um, I, I just, I, I have a few just kind of moderate words about um, Secretary Carter that are part of the implementation story that I'll just be frank about because this is about uh, this is about you know understanding what happened but but um, Secretary Carter um, announced um, uh, on July 13 2015 that he was effectively temporarily suspending uh, discharges of transgender personnel 
and putting in place a working group strategy to figure out how to repeal the policy. And so his study group spent the next six months figuring out how to um, how to repeal the policy. So, so before the Carter announcement, the key to implementation was that we as a community had to show that implementation would work. Because we knew that opponents in the building, in the Pentagon, would protest that we cannot possibly uh, repeal the transgender ban because what do we do about showers, and what do we do about uniforms, and what do we do about uh, gender marker identification. There are actually 14 different areas of implementation um, that we anticipated would be um, potential grist for opponents of mills. Um, and so before the Carter announcement, um, we had to show that trans service worked. And so we did that um, by focusing on the lessons of foreign militaries that successfully included trans service members um, um, and bringing foreign service members in uniform with ministry uh, officials to Washington and generating media around, um, around their successful service, which you know, there are obviously always a lot of arguments about differences between militaries and implementation in our military versus the British military, but, but we were able to show that in many respected militaries, trans people had served effectively. Um, and then also we did research showing that implementation, uh, that there were best practices for any possible implementation concern. After um, the, uh, the Carter announcement, um, the implementation strategy switched to a more of an insider game. Um, and um, it, it was very interesting to, to, to um, I felt very honored to have a, a seat at the table as part of the study process. Um, but about two, about two dozen times um, over the next six months after the Carter announcement, um, uh, the leaders of the working group would, would approach Palm and say something like, you know, we have this idea for dealing with medical leave, or we have this proposal for dealing with gender marker identification. Um, we have this idea for what surgeries should be included. And, and, and part of the, the, the trick was that, that for each implementation uh, area that they were talking about, what they were proposing um, would not fly with the transgender community because the standards would be um, more restrictive than uh, standards that the trans community was working to get civilian federal agencies to um, to implement, and the and the civilian trans agencies weren't really mindful of the differences of implementation in a military context. Um, and so, about two two dozen times, um, we provided policy memos um, um, articulating best practices for what would work in a military environment for promoting readiness that would also um, fly with the transgender community. And we were really proud that most of those suggestions were um, implemented. And, and, and the major, actually the major implementation suggestion was actually, and this was the hardest to get through, was um, to convince the Pentagon to simply treat gender dysphoria like every other medical condition. Because once you do that, um, then you can apply standards that are already on the books and you don't need to come up with separate rules. Um, so that was pre-Carter implementation. <coughs> Post-Carter implementation, and here's um, where I will um, um, be a little bit critical. Um, so Secretary Carter, um, um, and can I just get a sense of time uh, to see if oh, there are yes. like two minutes or 10 minutes? Oh, you've got nine. Secretary Carter had announced in July that um, the study process would take six months, and then the six-month mark passed. 
and there was silence. Um, and, um, and that was dangerous because we were racing against the clock. It was already 2016. The administration had no time left. Um, and you can't implement something as, as you know, big military policy in the last five minutes of an administration. Um, and the intelligence we had, which was very credible, might not have been true, but it was as credible as we could get, um, was that the entire decision rested in Secretary Carter's hands. So he was individually responsible for figuring out what to do. The working group had proposed a repeal policy, but he had to sign off on it that his generals were already looking to the next administration, and so the so space was opening up between OSD, the secretary's office, um, and the chiefs, and also that some space was opening up between the White House and, and the secretary because the White House had limited capital at the end and had military priorities that were higher than um, the repeal of the trans ban. And so my staff ridiculously um, came up with 17 strategies to, um, to try to move Secretary Carter. And the strategies all had to be quiet. And the reason they had to be quiet strategies is because there were other groups in the trans community um, that were very angry um, at the Palm Center for various reasons. Um, and if the repeal of the ban had not happened and we had implemented a loud strategy to uh, influence Secretary Carter, the other groups would have blamed us in the media for crashing inclusive policy that they would have said was about to happen until the Palm Center crashed it. Mm -hmm. So we came up with 17 quiet strategies to meet Secretary Carter. Um, uh, we implemented about 12 of them. Um, six of them definitely failed. Um, the other six happened. Um, I don't know if Secretary Carter's uh, eventual decision to lift the ban was a result of those six strategies that happened or if he would have uh, decided that anyways. Um, but that's, um, that's what we did on implementation. Um, and, and then the, 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 uh, the fourth and final um, uh, strategy that we used um, for advocacy purposes was just um, garden variety pressure. Um, uh, so at one point, um, the chief opponent um, in the building, um, Army Chief of Staff Milley, who has since come around, um, was, was our, our biggest opponent in the building. Um, and he floated a trial balloon. Um, uh, I can't remember if it was the Times or the Post, but he said that uh, more research is needed before we can uh, before we can uh, implement the ban. Um, that was late. Uh, it was May of 2016. There was really no time on the clock, so it was very dangerous that he was saying this. And so we um, we had a letter um, uh, lining. Uh, laying out all the research, basically showing that he was lying, and three general officers signed the, um, the letter. I loved the optics of that, and then um, sent the letter, and evidently he got very upset about the letter. Anyways, um, so, so that was that. Okay, so, so, so the answer in short as to why um, the ban <coughs> quickly was contextual factors, including momentum from Dominus and October repeal, and successful advocacy of leveraging <coughs> militarism in a militarized society by humanizing the issue, discrediting the rationale for the ban, um, showing that implementation could work, and applying pressure. Um, the final thing I'll say um, um, is about the second part of the, of the puzzle, which is why uh, inclusive policy has persisted this long into the Trump administration. Um, it's ultimately unknowable, but I'll, I'll speculate um, for, for a few minutes. All of you are probably mindful that the president tweeted 
uh, in July of 2017. So, so what was that about? Uh, four months into his administration, five months, six months, yeah, into his administration that trans people can't serve. Um, so, um, and, and right before he tweeted, um, very conservative representative Vicki Hartzler had tried to legislate the trans ban by attaching a bad amendment to a must-pass budget bill, um, and um, the community was able to flip 24 moderate Republicans and defeat that, that resolution, but basically, basically the administration and their allies in Congress have been fighting to repeal the ban um, since, overtly since I would say about April, May of 17. Um, so why haven't they succeeded? Um, I, a, a few speculations. Um, um, first was um, early recognition um, in the community that the administration would be a disaster. Um, and I remember my staff gathered in Washington a week after um, Hillary Clinton's defeat, and about half the staff thought that we should lay low, um, and that Trump is not personally anti-LGBT, he campaigned as a friend of the community, um, and the other half said, this is nuclear war, and we have to get out front of this. Um, and that side prevailed, and so a week and a half after the election, um, we released a statement by 33 retired generals and admirals um, who warned the incoming administration not to politicize policy for LGBT troops or women. Um, and we've been, not just the Palm Center, but the groups in the community have been treating the situation as an emergency since a week and a half after the election. So that was important. And there's been quite a bit of pressure not to treat it as an emergency, at least in those four, first four or five months when, when it seemed like things could go either way. Um, um, a second thing that's been very helpful um, has been um, the use of data to, to call out the um, administration's lies. Um, um, in March of 2018, um, Secretary Mattis uh, released a 44-page like study outlining the reason why discrimination is necessary. Um, <coughs> it was 44 pages, frankly, of lies. Um, one of the major lies in the study is that there is quote unquote considerable scientific uncertainty about the effectiveness of transition related care. Um, we knew that the report was coming. Um, we alerted the AMA and both APAs, the American Psychological and the American Psychiatric, um, and former Surgeons General, and within days of the release of the Pentagon report, um, uh, the AMA and both APAs and six Surgeons General issued statements saying effectively that the report was based on lies. Um, uh, and then uh, subsequently, so they jump-started the counter-narrative, um, and then subsequently we were able to release a, um, a report by three former military surgeons general, so the top medical officers in each ser uh, ser uh, service, um, going point by point through the Mattis report and showing why it wasn't true. Um, another tactic that's been effective um, has been um, um, ta tactics on the Hill, um, um, using what leverage we had on the Hill um, to kill the nomination of virulently anti-LGBT Army Secretary nominee Mark Green to defeat the Hartzler amendments, to pressure the chiefs into admitting that there is no rationale for discrimination, things like that. Um, and then a fourth and final um, strategy has been litigation, which um, uh, until now has worked. Um, so um, in terms of what happens next, 
seems a near certainty that um, given that the Supreme Court just lifted three out of the four preliminary injunctions that were preventing the administration from implementing the ban, that um, the ban will return quickly. Um, the president's, it's a, it's a political win for the president's to, to implement the ban because it appeases his white nationalist base who like undoing whatever Obama did and his traditional values base that just has, the, of course, a long, long-standing anti-LGBT strain. Um, um, however, um, the Democratic Party remains uh, firmly committed to inclusive policy from the, from the most conservative Democrats to the most liberal. Um, and I do believe that um, within, who knows, days, weeks, or months of um, uh, shifting of the administration, um, that inclusive policy will be restored and then it will have time to bake in. And hopefully, if we remain a democracy, it will be um, irreversible. Thank you so much.